We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. So this morning we are starting a new series called Shadows of Christmas, looking at the glimpses that we get of the Messiah that was promised through the Old Testament, and then seeing uh, the arrival of the substance that the shadows of the Old Testament are pointing to. Let me illustrate it like this. Uh, back in 2011, I got an invitation to go <clears throat> bear hunting in Canada. I love the outdoors. I love hunting. And so I got to go uh, bear hunting, and, and I've never really seen a bear in the wild. Uh, I've only seen a bear at the zoo where there's like this big plexiglass wall between me and the bear. And uh, so the thought of going to the woods, and I was bow hunting, so no, no firearm, just a, just a bow. And so it made me a little bit unnerved, but I was excited about it nonetheless. And so we go. And in um, the first couple of hunts, I never really had a bear in front of me. All I had was while I was sitting there uh, in Canada, and, and by the way, it's kind of freaky in the woods there because the, the, the aspen, as the, as the sun would go down, the aspen trees would look like your depth perception would be thrown off. They look like they're glowing. And so you're sitting there, and, and I would just see every now and then like a shadow of an animal walking by that looked like a bear. And then every once in a while you would see a little bit of black fur and then there would be moments where you're like, okay, that was a bear, but it was in the distance. And so like every time I got a glimpse of a bear, my heart would just pound out of my chest and I'm like, I don't know why I'm here at all. This is really dumb because uh, this thing could eat me. And so just by seeing all of the glimpses, man, my heart would pound. And then I started thinking to myself, if this is how I'm behaving, just getting a glimpse or shadows of the bear passing through the, the, the forest, what is it going to be like the moment he's in front of me 25 yards away? Like, like then I started freaking out. I'll be honest with you. All right. I like to think I'm a tough guy. Not so tough. So then it finally happened about three or four hunts in, I'm looking around and I go from seeing glimpses to, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're kind of looking somewhere, but you feel someone looking at you. Anybody been in those situations? Um, so that's what happened. I'm sitting here and I'm looking out there and all of a sudden it's like, something's looking at me. And I look over and there he was standing 25 yards away, just looking like, like staring a hole in me. Like, I know why you're here and you need to know while I'm here. All right. And, um, and so in that moment, I literally almost shook out of the tree. Like I, it, then it ran off. And so I think I scared it off, but I was so scared and terrified. So seeing the glimpses in the distance was exciting. But seeing the substance in front of me was overwhelming. And what we find in Scripture is that throughout the Old Testament, you, you see these promises that are made. You see these promises that, hey, there's a day coming when the Messiah is going to arrive. The Redeemer is going to show up. The, the King that we've been promised is going to come. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see these promises. And then, not just promises, you see these moments where you get glimpses of or shadows or types. That there are these characters that show up on the scene. And when you get a glimpse of them, you kind of get an understanding of what the Messiah 
Messiah is going to look like and be like when he comes. So you get what's called shadows or types of Christ. These glimpses of what it's going to be like when Jesus shows up. And so throughout the Old Testament, you're waiting and you're longing for and you're seeing glimpses of. And every time there is those moments where God kind of gives us a glimpse of the Messiah or a shadow of the Messiah, there there seems to be this build of anticipation of what is it going to be like when he finally comes. And throughout the scriptures, you see this growing anticipation until the moment in Bethlehem. When he shows up on the scene and we get to witness his life. And here's what we find out as we read the scriptures. As great as the shadows were, the substance is far greater. And so as we think about this series, here's what I want us to see. This this series, we're going to be looking at the various shadows of Christ. These glimpses that we get. And then we're going to look at those shadows and we're going to compare the shadows to the substance. And we're going to see that Jesus is greater than we ever imagined. He's greater than we ever expected. As we see the shadows and we see the substance, what I'm hoping happens is, is that as we celebrate Christmas, as we think about the arrival of King Jesus on planet earth to redeem us, that it would, would, would create in us this longing in our heart, not just to celebrate the fact that he came the first time, but rather put a longing in our heart to celebrate the time when he's going to come again to make all things new. Amen? So if you got your Bibles, let's grab them. Let's jump into Romans chapter number five this morning. Romans chapter five. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus is the greater Adam. We're going to see that Jesus is the greater Adam. We're going to look at the first Adam. Paul is going to unpack for us the the first Adam and what he brought into creation. And then we're going to see the greater Adam, Jesus, and what he brings into creation. And we're going to see that Jesus is the greater, the greater Adam. So Romans chapter 5, start reading in verse number 12. This is what the scripture says. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all... Sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now listen to this. Don't miss this last statement. Who was a type? Everybody say type. Everybody say shadow. That's what it means. A shadow or a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. So Paul makes it very clear here that that Adam was a type. He was a foreshadowing of a greater Adam that was to come. Now, this passage of Scripture is very, very important section of Scripture for us to understand some very key theological things about the nature of humanity, the nature of sin, and what Christ has done to redeem it. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is going to help us understand the nature of the human race. He's going to help us understand the origin of sin He's going to help us understand why there's so much brokenness in the world. But he's also going to show us how the arrival of Jesus as the greater Adam um, can change everything for us in the room. I don't know if you've thought, thought about this. When you think about your own life, you know, Paul goes into great lengths here to help us understand the devastation of sin that Adam ushered into humanity. What we just read about is what Adam brought in when he sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. That he, he, he brings in this, this devastation, um, and, and Adam is a representation, according to, to Paul here, of all of humanity. He, here's what I mean. Adam was the first human created and therefore serves as a representative for all of humanity. 
In fact, the name Adam, if you want to write this down in the margin of your Bible, the name Adam literally means mankind or man. That's what it means. So, so Adam is a very real character God created as the first living person on the planet, and he, as the first man, serves as a representative for all of mankind. So when you see the life of Adam, you begin to understand who we are and what it is we're here for. So when, when you read, go back and read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, here's what you're going to discover, is that God created everything in perfection. That God created all things in perfection, including Adam and Eve. That, that man was created in the imago Dei, in the image of God. So we were created distinctly among all of other parts of creation to, to bear the likeness of God, to live in a way that glorifies God unlike any other part of creation. We were created to not only bear the image of God, but to know God personally, to walk with Him, to fellowship with Him. That that man was created for the sole purpose of walking in fellowship with God, representing Him in creation. And we did this, listen, by walking in glad submission as God, as King of our life. So when you get into the Garden of Eden, in, in the original creation account, humanity walk in fellowship with God, submitting to him as king in this perfect place. And in the Garden of Eden, check this out, there was no sin, there was no evil, there was no, no uh, relational strife, there was, there was no sickness, there was no death. Everything was perfect. Everything. Now let's be honest, that's not the world we live in today. How many of y'all know the world is jacked up right now? Right? So, so that's not where we're living. So here's the question, what happened? Well, Genesis chapter 3 tells us what happened is that God places them in this place of perfection to walk in glad submission to him as king, and he gives them one command. Think about this. You get one command. Like, we can't remember 10. Adam and Eve had one. And the command was this, enjoy everything that I've created except for one stinking tree. Like, that tree, you got everything you'll ever want, but that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's a tree that's reserved for me only that is not to be yours. So don't, don't eat of it, for if you eat of it, you're going to surely die. So think about how easy this should have been for Adam and Eve. They have everything they could ever want or need. They were given one command, and not only were they given the command, they were given the consequences if they broke the command. Like, what's that? That's the tree you don't eat of. Which one? That, that one tree. All the trees. No, 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 no. Not all the trees, that one tree. Now, what's going to happen if we eat of the tree? You're going to die. Like, that's not an easy, that's not, not a hard thing to do, right? That's, that's, that should be pretty easy. So what happens? We know the story. The, the enemy comes, the serpent comes and begins to entice them and tempt them. It begins to make them question the goodness of God and the provision of God, just like he does us. And what do they do? They go and take of the tree and they eat of the tree. And in an instant, everything in creation changes. You see, as long as Adam and Eve lived under the created order, that is, God as king, and them living in fellowship with him as they submit to his kingship in their life, everything is in harmony. Everything is perfect. Everything is as it should be. But the moment that they rebel, here's what happened. They committed high treason against the king, and as a result of that, everything in the kingdom was broken. Everything. Everything in that moment was fractured. And, and here's what Paul says, when Adam and Eve made the decision in the Garden of Eden as humanity's representation, sin entered into the world, and through sin, death entered into the world. So in other words, brokenness, destruction, evil. So, so don't miss this. Every war that's ever been fought, 
Every evil deed that's ever been done, every evil thought that's ever been imagined, every action that's ever been made, every rape, every murder, every divorce, every, every single thing, every, every lie that's ever been told can be traced back to one singular moment, one singular moment only when Adam and Eve, humanity's representation, chose to rebel against the king. And from that moment on, the image of God was marred in humanity moving forward. Sin enters the world, death enters in the world. So uh, listen, this is why I want to I I push here because some of you, you know, we think about Christmas time, it's a, it's a happy time for a lot of us, but for, for many in the room, it may be a, just a reminder of brokenness, a broken home. It could be a reminder of, of, of a parents who didn't stay together or a dad that neglected you or a mom that abandoned you or it could be or a, a, someone who, who sinned against you. For some of you in this room, whether it's Christmas or other times of, of your life, you, you just things in your life remind you of the brokenness, sin that's been committed against you and brokenness and devastation that you live in. And for others of you, it's not necessarily the sin outside that happened to you. For some of you, you're just constantly reminded of the sin within you that seems like to have a hold of your life and you can't overcome coming. You know what I'm talking about? Like that thing in our life that we know, like I know I shouldn't do this, but it seems like I just can't. Like I promised myself a thousand times, I won't say that, I won't do that, I won't look at that, I won't go there. And it seems like over and over again, and regardless of the intentions that I have, I give in eventually and I make that decision. And I know these decisions hurt me and things that I love and people that I love, but there's something in me that just seems like I can't overcome it. Where does that come from? Well, this is what Paul wants us to understand. That when Adam sinned, this first Adam ushered in sin into creation, and now death and destruction is a part of our reality. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. This tells us the origin of what, what broke the world. What is it that caused all of these things that, have, that, that we live as a reality every single day? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down some thoughts here. These are some theological thoughts. I think they're important. Wayne Grudem, you know, fleshes this out. And um, he's a theologian um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and an author. And he really fleshes this out to understanding what happened when the original sin occurred, when, when sin entered into the equation. Paul is highlighting really two thoughts here. Let me give you the first one is this. is The first byproduct of sin entering the world that Paul highlights here is this. It's inherited guilt. Inherited guilt. Say, what is inherited guilt? Uh, here's the reality. We are all, everybody say all. Inherited guilt is simply this. We are all counted as guilty. Everybody say, I'm guilty. So we are all counted as guilty because of Adam's sin. That, that Adam, being the, the, the representative of humanity, ushered in sin. And because of this, we are all counted as guilty because of Adam's sin. Sin. Look, look what Paul says in verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, what, what Paul is simply saying is, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and now death through sin, so we have sin and death entered into the equation, and listen to this, and so death spread to all men. Now, why does death spread to all men? Why does death affect all of us? By the way, did you know the death rate is one per person, right? That's the reality. Now, Paul answers the question, why is death spread to all men? Why? Because all sinned. Now, when Paul says all sin, now we know we're all sinners in the room, amen? 
What Paul is referencing here is not necessarily the fact that we've all sinned, but rather that we're all counted as guilty sinners because of the sin of Adam. That now humanity, the, the, the human race, is now tainted and marred by sin. And because of Adam's decision, we are all born as guilty because we have inherited the guilt of Adam. If that, it's not clear in verse 12. Look what he says in verse 13 and 14. He says, for indeed, for indeed, uh, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. In other words, sin didn't become an issue because God gave laws and all of a sudden we broke laws. Rather, the laws were given to show us that our behavior is contrary to the nature of God. So sin existed before the law existed, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned reign from Adam to Moses. Now, why would Paul mention death reigning from Adam to Moses? Because he wants us to understand that death was a, a reality and a byproduct of sin before the law was ever established. That's when he refers to Moses. He's referring to Moses who brought about the law. And he says, even over those whose sinning was not like the first. So he, here's the point that Paul is making. Even without a written law, people died because of sin, as a result of the guilt of Adam that we have inherited. This is the reality. Listen, every single one of us in this room is born guilty before God because of the inherited guilt of Adam's sin. We are born spiritually dead, separated from God, and born under the tyranny of physical death. So not only have we died spiritually, which means to be separated from God, but we also live under the tyranny of physical death. Why? Because we all stand guilty as the human race because our first representative, Adam, sinned. He rebelled against God. Now, let's, let's, let's pause here for a minute because here's what I think is happening for some of you in the room. Now, don't you love it when pastors stereotype? So I'm not speaking about everyone, but here's the argument some of you maybe have in your mind. This isn't fair. Like, it's not fair. Like, it's not fair that Adam, the moron, like, took of the tree in the garden and he screwed up everybody's eternity because of this. Like, it's not fair that his guilt is transferred to me. It's not fair. Now, so I'm going to go with you for a moment, and I want to I tease this, this thought out. It's not fair that we have an inherited guilt. And I'm going I'm to help you reason through this in, in three ways. The, fir the first is this. Let me, let me kind of go there with you for a moment and just argue that it's not fair, that, that it is fair on the basis of, of this. Listen. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he did not sin as an individual. He sinned as a representative of the entire human race. Therefore, all who are born into the race of Adam, which is all of us, we bear the guilt because as a human race, we are guilty in Adam. You say, well, it's still not fair, and you didn't make your point. Well, let me illustrate it like this. How, how many of you would raise your hand if you were alive when the U.S. Constitution was written and drafted. Anybody? Stop nudging your, your spouse right now. Don't tell them you, you, you know. So no, none of us, it's zero. Everybody say zero. zero. None of us, none of us. But how many of you enjoy the freedoms today that the Constitution provides? Right? I, I, I appreciate the enthusiasm. I love it. <laughs> so we, 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 we understand that we, every day, we live in freedoms provided to us by the Constitution that we had no part in writing 
That we weren't even there when it was written. We had no, but yet as citizens of the United States, we enjoy the freedoms and the, we enjoy what the, the Constitution provides for us. Why? Because when the, those who wrote this, they were serving as representatives of, of all of America, for all Americans, for U.S. citizens. And therefore, even though we weren't there, we reap the benefit of that inherited rights that we had no part in. So if I was to illustrate it like this, if I was to have all of our veterans stand, those of you who fought in, the, in, in, in any, any capacity, whether it's just serving in the armed forces or actually going onto the battlefield, if I was to have those of you who did that stand, there would probably be a dozen or so folks stand that says, you know what, I, I fought and I defended our nation's freedom and I stood and I, I'm able to say that I protected what we, the freedom we all enjoy. Twelve people maybe in this room could stand and say, that's me. And yet, every single one of us today are enjoying the freedom that somebody else fought for. So, so in other words, what you would be saying is, is that we have inherited certain rights because of the actions of someone else. And no one in this room would say, well, that's not fair. No, you would say, no, that is fair. And I'm, I gratefully walk in that inherited right that I have. You would all embrace that and say, yes, thank you and amen for those who did that because you would understand it's something that you enjoy. And in the same way, listen, we have received the guilt of the decisions and actions of Adam even though we weren't there when he made those decisions. So listen to me. It is fair because Adam represents all of us. Listen, look at me. You are Adam. I am Adam. Here's the second argument, too. It's not fair. Second argument is this. Uh, it, it, let me ask you this question. How many of you, this is, everybody can play this game. You ready? How many of you have ever done something wrong and you knew it was wrong before you did it? Raise your hand if that's you. Some of you are contemplating whether to raise your hand or not. You're like lying, and now you're a part of the game. All right? So all of us in this room would have to confess and have to admit that we've all done something wrong, and we knew it was wrong before we did the thing that we knew was wrong. Like, we, we, we knew it, right? And we did it anyway. We just dug in and said, I know I shouldn't. I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to think it. I'm going to look at it. Whatever it might have been, you're going to do it anyway. All of us are guilty of this. You know what that means for you and me? Every single one of us in this room are guilty of the same sin that Adam committed. And so for, for me to say to you, you have inherited guilt, listen, doesn't mean that you're innocent in and of yourself because, listen, you made the same decision willfully that Adam made. That is to walk in rebellion to God even though you know that it was wrong to do so. And so the reason, one of the reasons Adam represents all of us because a Adam is just like if it would have been John, Jill, or Todd, it would just be a different name and the same story. Like all of us in this room are guilty. So we can't play the whole it's not fair game because you just admitted that every single one of you have made the same decision on your own that Adam made. So don't be offended that you are guilty under Adam's decision because if you removed Adam from the equation, you'd still be guilty. This is the point Paul is making. So let me give you the third argument. The third argument that, that or the third argument against it's not fair is this. It, it, listen, if you are offended at the fact that somebody's guilt is transferred to you even though you didn't commit the sin that they committed, 
That means you also should be offended that someone's righteousness could be transferred to you even though you weren't righteous. The, the word we use in theology is imputed righteousness or imputed guilt. Imputed means to be considered or reckoned as yours even though it wasn't yours. And so God says, and Paul says here, that God has imputed the guilt of Adam to you and I. And for you and I to say, well, I don't think that's fair. Even though we've admitted we've committed the same sin Adam has committed. Listen, we should also then say, then for God to impute the righteousness of Jesus to us is not fair either. But I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Listen, if you, if, you, if you gladly embrace the gospel of Jesus, then stop whining about it not being fair. Because trust me, you don't want fair. I'm glad God isn't fair. Because he has given me something that I don't deserve in Christ. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. Listen, we are all guilty in Adam. Which leads me to the second theological truth I want us to hang on to this morning that Paul reveals. The second is not only inherited guilt, but inherited corruption. Inherited corruption, we all, everybody say all. We all have sin natures because of Adam's sin. So not only do we have inherited guilt, we have inherited corruption. We have these sin natures that is in all of us. All of us have sin natures because of the sin of Adam. Let me kind of show you this in the scripture. Look at verse 14. It says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, he says, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Death reigned, even though our sin is different than Adam, we're sinful nonetheless. Look what he goes on to say in verse 19. He says, for by one man's disobedience, the many, the many, that's you and me, everybody born into Adam. How many of you in this room are born into Adam? everybody, right? Everybody in this room is born into Adam. For, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is a reference to all of us, that every single one of us born into Adam are born into sin. We have a sin nature. We have been made sinners. Listen, do you know why you sin, by the way? Because you're a sinner. Like, why does a dog bark? Because it's a, do it's a dog. Dogs bark. That way it barks because it's a dog. Now, if I bark, it doesn't make me a dog, right? But if I'm a dog, what am I going to do? So listen, you sin because you're a sinner. You, you've been made a sinner. You have inherited the nature of your first parent, Adam. And all were made sinners. This is the reality for every single one of us. Every single one of us have sinned against God's command willfully because it's our nature to do so. We have a bent toward sin. This is what David says about it. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David is not talking about the sin of his mother being what brought about a conception, but rather what he's saying here is, is that in my mother's womb, I was already sinful. I was woven together with my very nature. I was brought forth in iniquity, another word for sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. All of us are sinners. Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 1, 
Verse 3, he says, and you, this is all of us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So all of us were born spiritually dead, and we were born as trespassers and sinners, in which you once walked. So it was a way of life for us, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now listen to this, among whom we all, everybody say all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Why is Paul emphasizing the passions of our flesh? It's a part of our very nature. We are sinners by nature. We are born into sin. We have inherited a corrupt flesh. Look what he says. Carrying out the desires, we want to, of the body. It's in us. And of the mind. We think about it. We do it. And we're by nature, by our very birth, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is Paul saying here? We are all born with a bent toward sin. Now listen, no one in this room can argue this. Let me rephrase that. No one with kids in this room can argue this. Right? Like none of you can argue this if you've got kids. Because not, not a single parent on the planet in the history of ever has ever sent their kids to disobedience school. You've never had to teach your kids to be selfish. You've never had to show them how to say no. You've never had to sit down and say, now listen, when your teacher asks you to do something, I want you to stomp your foot. I want you to tell her I'm not doing it. No parent has ever had that conversation. No, we've had the reversal though. We've had to tell our kids, no, you can't say that. You've got to share that. You've got to respect them. You've got to behave in this way. Why? Because our kids are bent towards sin. I mean, they, they, they come out of the womb, and they're, they're leaning that direction. Where does that come from? It comes from our very nature. I love what one secular psychologist said. His name is uh, Burton White. He, he did some, uh, uh, some research on uh, childhood behavior, and specifically in the development period of their life where they begin to rebel. He, he talks about the fact that as parents, you begin to put parameters around your kids and they immediately within themselves want to rebel against that. Listen to what he says. He says, from 15 to 16 months on, as his self-awareness, the child's self-awareness, becomes more substantial, something in his nature we don't fully understand will lead him to deliberately try each of these forbidden activities or whatever rules you place around them, specifically to see what will be allowed and what will not be allowed. In other words, he will begin systematically to challenge the authority of the adults he lives with. Resistance to simple requests becomes very common at this time. And if there is more than one child around, this can be a very low point in the parenting experience. <laughs> I love that. Anybody with multiple kids want to testify to that? Yeah. I mean, it, it is crazy to see. Like I, when my first child was born, I'm convinced that the, the doctrine of original sin. And by the time the third one showed up, I'm convinced that some are bigger sinners than others. That's what I was convinced of. Like, like he says in here, I love it. He says, there's something that happens in their nature, in their personhood. We're not quite sure what it is, but it causes them to want to rebel against the authority of their life. Like we know what that is. Paul would say it's the sin nature. It's the inherited corruption that all of us have. And we know this. We, in our society, we acknowledge this. Like I've got a son. And everybody talks about my son looking like me. And then, then they talk about him acting like me, typically when he's acting up. Like, I've heard, I've heard cliches in regards to, like, my son's behavior. I want you to listen to a couple of these. See if you can finish them. This is, these are some of the cliches that I hear often. Um, he's a chip off the old, like father, like, 
The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He's acting like his mama, mama, mama. <laughs> we all have a sin nature. We all have a sin nature. This is a part of our reality. That we are broken. We are born into sin. The first Adam ushered in sin. And therefore, listen, death reigns as a consequence of it. Brokenness reigns as a consequence of it. Now, I know for some of you in this room, you're like, yeah, you're talking about this moral corruption that we have. And, 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 and I don't know that we're all like, like as bad as you're trying to make us out to be. We have some good things that we do. Let me, let me help you with this, okay? So when we think about the doctrine of total depravity of humanity, what that means is, is that there's nothing good in us. We are all broken to the core. We are corrupt by nature. The pushback is, is that, well, yeah, but I, I do some good things. And there are people that, are, that, that, that do good things for society. And so there seems to be this goodness in us. And you're talking about all of this, this corruption. Listen, total depravity of humanity. Listen, it doesn't mean that we're not capable of doing something good that benefits others. It just means that even our motive in doing that thing is still broken and flawed. So let me put it like this. You may not be as bad as you could be, but you're as bad off as you could ever be. Because in your sin nature, you are separated from God and you are broken. Let me illustrate it like this. Like, like water is a, is a great thing. I've been drinking this morning because I got a little uh, sinus issue, and so I've been kind of sipping away. Water's great. Water quenches the thirst. Water is able to, to soothe the sore throat. Water has a sustainability power for the body, right? So water is a good thing. And so all of us would talk about the good qualities of water. However, if I took poison and put it in this bottle of water, here's the question. Would it eliminate the goodness of water? The answer is no. Water would still in and of itself have qualities within it that are still good. But now even the good qualities of water would be tainted by the poison. Therefore, any goodness that we might point to about the bottle of water, even though there are poison in it, would be null and void because the badness of the poison has impacted even the goodness of the water. Are you with me? So listen, even your goodness has been affected by sin. And when you compare your goodness on your good day to a holy God, it is nothing more than poison-tainted Water. Listen, the scripture says your goodness, your righteousness is as filthy rags compared to God. So listen, we can't get on this because I do good things and I must not be corrupt. Now listen, the corruption runs so deep that even our goodness are offensive. Our good, the goodness that we do is offensive to God. Now listen, verse 14 comes along. And I'm glad verse 14 is in there because Paul begins to make a transition. Because some of you are like, this is the worst Christmas sermon I've ever heard in my life. I want you to listen to what Paul says next. Verse 14, he says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Listen, who was a type, a type of one who was to come. So, so Paul has been building this thing up. He's highlighting the failure of the first Adam because he's going to point us to the success of the greater Adam. He is going to show us a contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. He says this first Adam was a failure, but he was only a shadow, a type of one greater who was to come. And what the one who is greater, who was promised, when he comes, he will come and bring about the reversal of everything that the first Adam caused in creation. You see, Adam, the first Adam, was just a type or a foreshadowing of the greater one to come. And this is why we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. He is the greater Adam who has come to reverse the curse 
of the first Adam. Jump into verse 15 with me, if you would. I want you to look what he says here. He says, but the free gift, so I love that. He refers to the gospel as the, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now listen to what he says next. And the free gift is not, everybody say not, like the result of one man's sin. Now notice what he does here. Two times he talks about the free gift and he contrasts it with Adam's failure. He says the free gift is not like the trespass. And then verse 16 he says and the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. Here's what Paul is doing. Paul is contrasting between the two Adams. He's showing us that the, the type of Adam, the first Adam was a failure, but the second Adam the greater Adam, it's not going to fail. He's going to reverse everything that was caused. Look what he goes on to say. He says, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So the result of the first Adam was condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the first Adam ushers in condemnation. The second Adam offers in justification. He says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now here is what Paul does. He wants to contrast between the first Adam and the greater Adam. He wants us to see the difference and the distinction of what the first Adam did and what the second Adam did. I want to give you the list of them. Paul, through verses 12 and on, he makes this contrast very clear for us. I want you to write these down if you're taking notes. Contrast between the first Adam and the greater Adam. The, the first Adam ushered in disobedience, but the greater Adam ushers in obedience. So, so in the Garden of Eden, there's a temptation, and that temptation was to rebel against God. The first Adam disobeyed, and, and, and because of this, there's brokenness in the world. But there was another garden, and Jesus was in that garden, and in that moment, he obeyed perfectly everything that the Father demanded of him. In fact, here's what the Scripture would say. There was no fault in Jesus that he had not sinned one time. The first Adam brings in disobedience. The second Adam brings in obedience. The first Adam brings in, uh, he introduces sin, the greater Adam introduces righteousness. So, so sin entered into the world to the first uh, man. In his disobedience, he ushers in the, the, the thing that has plagued humanity from Genesis chapter 3, that sin was introduced into the equation, and we are hopeless in and of ourselves to ever have what we need, which is righteousness, to present ourselves to God. But thanks be to God, in Christ, the greater Adam, he introduces now a righteousness that only is found in him. That one brings sin, the other one brings righteousness. Now here's number, number three. Here's the third contrast Paul gives. Uh, the first Adam brings death. The greater Adam offers life. That the consequence of Adam, the guilt that was transferred to us, results in death. That we are living under the tyranny of death. According to Paul, it reigns from Adam to Moses to now that death is a reality for every single one of us. But thanks be to God that Jesus has come and he now offers life. You see, Jesus is the greater Adam because the first Adam brings death. Jesus brings life. The third, the fourth contrast is this. The first Adam brings condemnation. The greater Adam brings justification. Condemnation is simply this. Uh, and this is something Paul repeats over and over again throughout the section of scripture. He wants us to understand that in Adam, the first Adam, we are born under the, 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 the weight of our, our sin, the guilt of our sin. Therefore, we are deserving recipients of God's judgment. That's what condemnation is. It's simply this. It's the, it's the judgment of God coming to us and we deserve it. 
So Adam ushers us into condemnation, but Jesus, the greater Adam, ushers in justification. Say, what is justification? One of my favorite definitions of justified is this. It's justified, never sin. That the first Adam in him, I stand condemned before God. But in Jesus, when I am born into the greater Adam, I am justified. I stand before God, not in the sin that I've committed, but in the righteousness that Jesus has given. And because of that, I stand before God justified like I've never sinned, not even once. In condemnation, I stand under the guilt. In justification, I stand under grace. This is his last contrast the first Adam alienates us from God the greater Adam reconciles us to God and this is the root issue for all of us in this room is that we are born sinners because we are born sinners we stand under the the guilt and the weight and the shame of our sin corrupt to our core nothing we can do can reunite us into this relationship with God that we desperately long for because it's what we were created for we are alienated from God but because Jesus came the greater Adam he was the the substance that the shadow pointed to now because of his obedience because of his righteousness because of his justification we now can be reconciled to God in him that we now can enter into a relationship with God that's not on the basis of who we are in the first Adam, but rather because we've embraced the greater Adam. You see, this is why the gospel is so beautiful, and this is why we celebrate Christmas the way that we do. And this is why this holiday is so significant and so sacred to us as believers that we celebrate the arrival of the greater Adam, the one who was promised to come, who would bring life to us, who would restore us back to God, who would bring fellowship again. You see, here's the reality. All of life, listen to me, believer, all of life comes down to the tail between two Adams. The tail of two Adams. The story of two gardens. See, everything comes down. Either Listen, you are either in Adam or you are in the greater Adam. You are either in the first Adam or you are in Christ. The tale of two Adams, the story of two gardens. And here is the beauty of the gospel and what we celebrate at Christmas You see, in the, first, in the first story, in the first Adam, we'll be placed in a garden. And he would choose to eat of the forbidden tree. And it resulted in curse upon all of humanity. But the second Adam, the greater Adam, he would willfully go to a garden And he would be obedient to his father. And he would be crucified on a tree, receiving the curse of humanity. You see, in the, in the first garden, Adam wanted to establish life independently, and it resulted in death. In the second garden, in the greater Adam, Jesus gave his life willfully so that he might defeat death. You see, the story of Christmas is significant because it tells us that the greater Adam, who would go to a greater garden, who would encounter a greater tree, who would overcome the greater enemy, so that you and I might be forgiven, that the guilt might be taken away, and so that the nature might be replaced 
You see, you are either a part of the bloodline of Adam or you're a part of the bloodline of the greater Adam. You're either living your life under the tyranny and the rule of sin and death or you are living your life under the rule of King Jesus where you have victory over sin and where death has already been defeated. And this is the story of Christmas. This is why we celebrate the way that we do. We, we understand that there is something broken in the world and that God has sent Christ, the greater Adam, to come and restore to make all things new, that He is the substance that we've been longing for and waiting for. You say, how do in the world do I experience this? How do I enter into the reversal? And if I have, what is the benefit? What does it, what does it mean to me? I want you to listen to this, verse 18. Verse 18, it says, Therefore, he's coming to some conclusion Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, listen to this, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For, listen to this, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So the question is, who are the many who were made sinners? We talked about this a second ago. The answer is this, everyone born into Adam, we are the many. Every single one of us, we are the many who were made, made sinners. Everyone born into Adam. But listen to what he says this. He says, so by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. So who are the many? If the many in the first scenario under the first Adam is those who are born into Adam, then who are the many in the righteous act of the greater Adam? It is the many who have been born again into Christ. So church, listen to me. Listen, if you are born once, if you are born into Adam, you are the many who stand condemned because of sin under the weight of guilt, under the weight of shame, under the consequences that are that's called death. But if you are in Christ, you are born into him. Listen, you are made righteous, which means when you're born again, you no longer have guilt, you have grace. You no longer have condemnation, you have justification. You no longer have sin as your master. You now have righteousness that's been imputed to you and you now stand before God whole, not because you got your act together, but because you became the many by an act of grace where you were born again by Jesus. You were given a brand new nature. You were given a brand new nature. You were given a brand new family line. You were no longer captive by sin, captive by death. You have been made alive in Christ. Now, church, listen to me. Don't miss this. When we think about this, I love what he says here. He says, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Another way of saying this is where sin abounded, grace superabounded. In other words, you cannot out God's grace. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, God's grace is sufficient and it is enough. If you've never trusted in Christ today, you, you need to trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Listen, you are either in the first Adam or you're in the second Adam. If you've only been born into the first Adam, you need to be born again into the second Adam, the greater Adam. You need to be a part of a new bloodline. You see what Jesus is creating? You know what Jesus is creating? He is creating a new race of humanity. A humanity that's now being restored back into the image that we were created in to reflect in perfection who God desires for us to be. And listen, while we're a work in progress, listen, God in Christ is doing a brand new thing in us. So we step out of the old humanity defined by sin. We step into a new humanity defined by the righteousness of Jesus. And here's the great news. The story is not over. 
You see, this is why I love the whole story of the Bible and not just bits and pieces of the story. You see, in Genesis, the very first part of the Bible, there's the story of a garden. There's a story of a man who was placed there to cultivate the garden, to grow the garden. What was the aim of Adam? God wanted Adam to make the entire world as beautiful as Eden was. But he failed. And sin entered into the world and destroyed everything. And from that moment, humanity is looking for the greater Adam to step in. Jesus comes. He brings about redemption. He offers his life. He pays the penalty for our sin. He resurrects to life. And now he's creating a new life in us. And guess what? The story doesn't end there. The end of the Bible, there's another garden. There's a garden at the end of all of the scriptures. Here's what you find. You find perfection. You find a restored Eden. What you find is, is where the first Adam failed, the new Adam, the greater Adam finishes. And when eternity's over, those who have been born again into the greater Adam, we will one day be in that garden again. And this time it will be fully cultivated and it will cover creation. And here's what will happen in that moment. All tears will be wiped away. All evil erased. Every sin will be done away with. No sin, no death, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. Everything as it should be because the greater Adam has come to recreate where the first Adam has failed. And on that day, church family, and on that day, no more struggle. So for some of you in this room, you're like, man, I'm in Christ. What does that mean for me? Here's what that means for you. Listen, you're living in a period of time that we call the already but not yet. So the first Adam has come, or the, the second Adam has come, and he is redeemed, and he is restored, and he has reversed the curse. And now he is in the process of making all things new, and there's a day coming when his job will be completed and everything restored as it's supposed to be. And from now until then, we are a work in progress. But here's what we need to know. Sin is not our master. Death has been conquered, and we can live as free men and women in Christ, walking with our new family that is founded in the greater Adam named Jesus. Listen, church family, I'm, I'm telling you, this changes everything for us. It changes everything for us. Some of you are living in defeat because you don't know who you are. You're living in defeat because you don't understand that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And yes, you struggle with sin. And yes, death is a reality. And yes, the, the effect of sin is still here. But the power of sin has been broken in you. Death has been swallowed up in victory because of the greater Adam. You can walk in freedom. So this morning, here's the question. Are you... Are you in the greater Adam? If not, you need to repent of your sin today. Confess, Jesus, I need you to come be the Lord of my life. I know you're the greater Adam who died and who resurrected to free me. You're my only hope, and I need forgiveness, and I need a new start. I need a new life. I want to be born again into your family line. Give me a new heart. Set me free from the tyranny of sin and death in my life. Others of you in this room, if you've already embraced Jesus, then you need to learn and remember and walk in who you are and what Christ has done. And that thing that grabs a hold of your heart and life and you can't seem to break it, understand you are free and you can walk in freedom. 
And so for those of you who need to give your life to Christ, you can do that in your, room, in, in your seat. In this room right now, I know there are many of you who need to trust in Christ. And so right now where you are, you can just confess, God, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I want to be born again into the greater Adam. I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. In a moment, there's going to be men and women here to come. You can come and pray with them and let them know that decision. You, or maybe you have questions, you can come and ask them about that. Others of you in this room, you know Christ. So here's my encouragement to you. Listen. Whatever stronghold is in your life right now, if you are in Christ, you are set free. So maybe confessing those things and acknowledging sin, you have no hold in my life. Christ, I need you to be the strength of who I am. Maybe you want to come and get prayer from a brother or sister up here that would help you begin to walk in the freedom that is yours in Jesus. Brad, in a moment, is going to introduce a brand new song that was just written by he and uh, Zeke a couple of weeks ago. It's a song that they wrote specifically for this series and specifically for what we talked about this morning. You see, they took the Christmas carol, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and what they did is they told the fuller story. So in the first verse of this song, you're going to see in the, the, the verse that, that it's going to point to the, the waiting and the coming of the Messiah and the, the longing for the day that Jesus would show up. But the second verse is then going to highlight what the greater Adam accomplished that he went to the cross and he died in our place and that he resurrected so that we can have a new life. And then the final verse, the third verse, is going to remind us that the greater Adam is coming again and he's going to make all things new. And we wait, and we wait in anticipation for that day. And we long for that day when what the greater Adam has accomplished becomes a fullness that we walk in every single day for the rest of eternity. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I'm going to pray over you and then we're going to sing. And we're going to worship. Our, our staff will be here for prayer. I would encourage you to leave your seat and come if you need to accept Christ, if you need to be encouraged in prayer, I'll be prayed for. But for those of you who just, you just need to remember the goodness of God, I want you to listen to this song and let the Lord minister to your heart as we worship together. Father, I love you and I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather in this place, to worship, to sing praises to you, the greater Adam who has come to set us free. So Lord, I pray for every single person in this room who doesn't know you. Maybe they're trusting in, in their own works or their own goodness, or maybe they've not thought about their life from the perspective of eternity. God, today, may they give their life to you, be born again into the greater Adam. And God, for those of us who, who know you, God, may we walk in the new reality that is ours because the greater Adam has come. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.